guess you all know that we live in a fallen universe, right? I don't think it takes us very long to figure that out. In spite of the language in Genesis chapter 1 we, and 2 about how everything was good. In fact, uh, six times God said that, right? It's good, it's good, it's good. And, or in the last case, as we saw that it was very good. And that didn't last long. Just a couple of examples of that. We probably mentioned a few of those in our prayer time this morning a little bit, but a couple of examples in the news here recently should remind us of that truth that, uh, that we live in this fallen universe. I think of the report of the California couple who um, have been accused of torturing and imprisoning their children, all but 13, or I'm sorry, one, all, all but... Uh, um, uh, one of their 13 children, and uh, the news headline was that it was a house of horrors. If you heard about that, it's just, uh, it's just devastating to, to see some of that stuff. And of course, then we have the Parkland School, uh, um, Parkland, Florida School shooting. And um, it's interesting, though, I, you start following that, and you start watching that, and it's like Susan said, it's just time sometimes you've got to shut that off because now they're blaming almost everybody, the police, the FBI, the, the uh, uh, the, the school board, the uh, community, and all that, and it just, uh, uh, you start going down the list of that, and you start looking at it. They're doing all that. Um, they're seemingly uh, blaming everyone except the, the, the shooter himself, and they're just at each other and stuff, but I mean, it's just, of course, we've got also, you know, in spite of some of those things, and you can hit through all the headlines, it's, it's hard to, you know, to kind of go through some of those, you get kind of depressed. But you think about things like the, uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago we were hearing about hurricanes, we were hearing about fires, and we were, you know, some of those fires are still going in uh, different places, and uh, we, um, we, we hear about all the devastation that that produces, and it just, it just seems that uh, this world is just a disaster. It's, we live in this fallen world, world uh, this fallen universe. The, the, the fall of man has really caused a lot of bad things to happen. And that really shouldn't surprise us. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this is where we've been. Genesis 1 and 2, God created the universe. He created that good. But apparently it wasn't good enough, at least not for Eve. Uh, as you know, we're in this series. We're trying to tell God's story. We're starting in the beginning, and these... Um, I, I, I kind of, uh, uh, last week I mentioned, uh, I just said, you know, just because we're in one and two and now three today doesn't mean that we're going to hit every chapter between here and the end of the book of Revelation. I didn't want you to be afraid. But uh, we are in this telling the story. The story is really simple, and I'm going to even make it even simpler today. Here's what it is. God created the universe. The universe was good. Man messed it up. That is the fall. That's really what, that's, that's the simplistic part of it, right? Genesis chapter, um, today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. From this point on, by the way, from Genesis chapter 4 all the way, all the way to the end of the uh, book of Revelation, it's all about the fact that God is creating this possibility of redemption for mankind. That's what it's all about. From here on out, that's all it's going to be about. The first part, he creates the universe, it's good, man sins, uh, but everything on that is God trying to restore broken uh, mankind down uh, back to himself and you get to the uh, but it's all about that fact you get to the end of this whole thing and this is all wrapped up 
in at the end of Revelation, all wrapped up in the coming of Jesus. We started in a garden, we end up in a garden. We, we started in a relationship with God, we end in a relationship with God. But it's in between those things that things can just be a bit of a mess. Genesis chapter 1 tells a story from heaven's perspective. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's really telling the story. God tells about creation and how he did it. It's from God's perspective. He says the heavens and the earth. Then you get to chapter 2 and all of a sudden he he retells the story, but this time it's told from earth's perspective. This is the earth and the heavens. And, and, and we came to the end of the chapter 2, and, and, and if you remember, last week, what, here's what it said. It said that they were naked and they were without shame. Now, we're going to have a couple of things up here. Don't turn it yet, but we're going to have a couple of things. And I just want to remind you, uh, just to let you know, when we, when we look at some of these, um, these scriptures that are on there, I'm hoping to, I, I didn't know how else to do it, but I'm hoping that you will check the things that are highlighted, because those are the things to pay close attention to. I think that if you see that and you, and you remember that, because as we go along, I, I think that it really will catch us. Uh, it, it really mean a lot to us by the time we, we get done here today. But it's, uh, and also, um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Just, just pay attention maybe even to some of the inflection that I use, because I, I, I'm wanting, I'm hoping that you'll catch some things. But we've, we've looked at this, and at the end of chapter 2, we saw that there was, there was, there was no shame, Right? Okay, no shame. Unfortunately now, in our English Bibles, we don't have a clear connection between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. But it is very clear if you read it the way that it was written in the first place. There is a verbal connection between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis 3, and the connection is the word shame. Genesis 3 starts out this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Look at that word crafty. It means sly. It means underhanded. It happens to come from the same word as ashamed. And so there's this verbal catch for the reader to know that these stories are connected. These stories are connected. Now, While there was no shame in the garden, the one who produced the shame has just showed up on the scene, and you know the story, but I want us to read it together. Let's read. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. Remember what we said about that last week. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now I want you to press the pause button here just for a moment, and I want you to notice a couple of things here. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. You go back and look at that record. He didn't say that they couldn't touch it. He only said that they couldn't eat from it. Eve adds that restriction. And, and then notice how she, she leaves out this idea of free, that they may freely eat from. Somehow she has made God more restrictive. She's made this more restrictive than what God had intended. And she's already lost sight of what it was that God was trying to communicate. So Satan comes along in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, and he says this. 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and almost desi also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband and, who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they, were, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves, hid, hid, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now just wait a minute here. Let's pause again. I want you to remember the distinction that we talked about between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1, remember, it's always God. It's the word um, Elohim, the, the creator God. Genesis chapter 2, it's always the Lord God. Genesis 1 is about the God who has this power over the, all the universe. He's sovereign. Genesis chapter 2 is about this relational, uh, gen, uh, the Lord God, it, it's, it's Yahweh. Uh, not Elohim, but Yahweh. It's, it, it's the God who is, is a relational God. He's a God of humanity. He wants this relationship with us. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. It's the same God. It's just talking about two different... Uh, um, it, it addresses Him as the Creator in, in chapter 1 and it addresses Him as the relational God in chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 3, it talks about the Lord God followed immediately, notice it, by Satan's response. Did God really say? Do you catch it? When Satan comes on the scene, what does he refer to? He doesn't refer to the relational God, not to the God that we can connect with, not to the God that, who loves us and who walks with us in the cool of the garden, but he refers to the remote God, the one who is out there, who is sovereign over everything, and Eve falls for it. And she forgets about the relational nature of God and she finds herself referring only to the sovereign side of this distant creative God. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam took it like a man. He said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You kind of notice the pattern here, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to take some responsibility. The man says, it's the woman. The woman says, it's the, it's the serpent. In fact, Adam comes dangerously close. I don't know if you noticed that. He comes close to stepping over the line here. I mean, here's how it sounds if a man reads it. Okay? Uh, it was the woman you gave me. But I wonder if it, would, might, it might be read a little bit more closely like this one. Are we on that one yet? Oh, we're, way, we're one ahead. No, we've got to go back one. I wonder if we're, we're, on, we're on number 12. I wonder, it wasn't your fault, I wonder if it might more say something like this, it was the woman that you gave me, as almost as if he's, he's blaming God for the mess that he's in. See, either way, any way we want to look at that, 
none of us really wants to take responsibility for ourselves. Let's find someone else to blame. If we can't blame our wife, we might as well blame God, right? Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Your pain will, your, with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. If you remember last week, Adam, uh, Adam, Adam, uh, Adamah, uh, Adam meaning uh, 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 this man, or it's a general nature, uh, Adam comes from the dirt. Remember that? Adam, you came from the ground, that's where you're going to return. They, they, both of those have the same root. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It's interesting. We've got a lot of people still trying to get into the Garden of Eden. They're looking for it. They're finding it. And I'm just, I'm just wondering what the problem is. <laughs> but what happened here, right? What happened? Well, the first thing that I see right here that, that's happened is this encounter with Satan that really begins to inform us about the nature of temptation. It really does, right? In this text, Satan turns everything around. You saw that happening, right? He, we, we don't see it much, actually, in our English Bibles, but, but he moves things in the sentence. He replaces phrases. He, he moves things around so that Eve is given the impression that God really doesn't mean what he said. He stiffens everything up by getting rid of the idea that you can freely eat, but this is a statement of freedom. He makes a statement of restriction. He adds, you can eat from any, any uh, tree of the garden. God only said that there was one tree that they didn't have access to. Eve gets everything all messed up. She begins to talk about God rather than the Lord God, the Creator rather than this relational God. She adds the idea, if you even touch it, you could be in trouble. And she omits the idea that you, that, that you would surely die if you ate it. She buys into this whole thing that God must not really mean what he said. It's really interesting to me, isn't it? I mean, how, how sometimes when, when things don't happen immediately, you get the impression that they're not going to happen at all? She said, not only can we not eat of the tree, we can't even touch it. 
And Satan comes along and says, oh, God didn't really mean what he said. And so she reaches out and she takes it and she eats it and guess what? Nothing happened. I asked my kids that in Sunday school this morning. I, actually, it was on the, on the true or false question. I said, when Adam and Eve, when they ate of the fruit, they, they fell down dead. False. They didn't do it. Nothing happened. Sometimes delayed consequences are the very thing that entices us to keep doing the stuff that we shouldn't do. We're told that certain actions have consequences. But when it doesn't happen immediately, we think we're getting away with it. That's, what, that's the way Satan works. Just a, a couple of texts maybe that, might, that you might want to write down if you're taking notes. John chapter 8, verse 44, it tells us, go back and look at that today, it tells us that Satan is the father of lies. That is the nature of temptation. John 8, 44, the nature of temptation is just simply to lie to you, to tell you that your actions don't have consequences. It's really interesting, you know, when you look at Scripture, that the, the, the pattern of temptation is really typically the same in almost every situation. It shows up, for example, in, in 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Uh, take a look at what John says. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone, does, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, here they are, here it is, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and, has, and, what he has and, and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. We notice that right in the garden, don't we? Satan came along and said, boy, that piece of fruit, it sure does look good. And it might taste pretty nice, right? It might taste pretty good. It, oh, and it's so appealing. Oh, And when you're all done, you will be as wise as God. It's an appeal. It's the same appeal that is made to Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism, right? Here, turn these stones into bread. I mean, you know, that, that and, and satisfy that. And it, oh, hey, take all... Take a, take a look at all the things that I can give you. Oh, you're pretty important, Jesus. Jump off this temple. No one is going to let you get hurt. And Satan lies to us and he tells us what makes us feel better, what feeds our imagination, what makes us important. He teaches us that those things are going to be that which is good, always wholesome, and then he lies to us. Those things that are bad for us, he feeds that to us. He lies to us. He says those are good for us. So in Genesis chapter 3, we see this encounter with Satan where God is removed and the meaning of his word is made to look as if he doesn't really, that, that it doesn't really matter. And, and, and what you begin to see as people fall into temptation, did you notice this? They fall really quickly, Right? Genesis 3, 6, if you were to look at that, uh, it, it starts really kind, of full, really kind of slow. You know, she sees the fruit, it's pleasing to the eye, it's desirable for gaining wisdom, and then the gears shift. And, and temptation is like that. It slowly entices you, but once you make that decision, then it becomes, 
it, it begins to come one right after the other. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. That's how it went, right? And so what we see here is we see an encounter with Satan in this first part. That's, but we, we not only see that, but I, I, we, we want to then also notice that we see, starting with verse 9 and following there, we see this encounter with God. And in that encounter with God, we are taught about personal responsibility. God comes seeking his people. That, to me, is what's so amazing about this text, is that God chooses to come looking for his children. And he comes gently, walking in the cool of the day, calling for them, wondering where they have gone. And that's the first thing you notice about sin. It, it causes you, it causes you to want to hide from God. Can anybody relate to that? Sin causes us to want to hide from God. It, it appears that before this, that Adam and Eve simply spent time walking with God. It's wonderful if you were to take that. This is this is for free to, you maybe write this down. Follow that around in Scripture sometime. Looking at the ways that different people who walk to talk that has that 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 phrase walking with God, um, it's it's a great it's a great theme, but they spent time. It, it, you get this this understanding that they spent time in the cool of the day in this relationship with the Creator of the of the universe. How awesome would that be? This was the Lord God, who entered into their lives, and now all of a sudden, because of one decision decision to violate His command, they've been removed from that presence. And they don't even want to see him. So what happens here is this, this sense of, of, of separation because sin has entered into their lives. It, it's just such a common theme how sin separates us from, from other people and it separates us ultimately from God. In fact, it finds its way, well, it finds its way into a lot of literature if, you're, if, you, if you look at that. I, I, I can think of one that maybe, maybe all of us are understand. But I, I think back to when I was in high school and all those things, that, all those books they made you read, you know, some literature. But one, one that comes to directly to mind is Hawthorne's book. Anybody? The Scarlet Letter. Anybody read that? Nobody read that. You did. Anybody else read that? Gosh, we were made to do that. Okay. So anyway, Hawthorne's book, The, the Scarlet Letter. But we've heard of it, right? The Scarlet Letter, it's a classic, it's a, but, but the interesting, um, um, Hester Prynne in this book has to walk around with a big embroidered A on her sweater because she is an adulteress. And she's separated from the rest of the people when everyone knows what she's done. That's the basis of the book and it's really about about, about uh, bringing uh, redemption and so on and so forth, that whole book. But it's interesting how that theme really, it's not just in our literature, um, Paradise Lost, I think of, um, 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 I can't think of any more right now, but it, it's, it's all over our literature. It's, but it's interesting how that theme really gets carried around in Scripture as well. Remember what, what happens to those who have touched, we, we kind of listen to that, give us clean hands, remember that? Okay. This is where this, this comes from, I think, that, that, that song. Remember what happens to those who have touched an unclean animal, animal in the Old Testament? 
or are involved in some kind of unclean activity, they are not to allowed to come into the tabernacle because they're not allowed in the presence of God because of their uncleanness. Right? And in the New Testament, if you were unclean, when you walked on the street, if you had that, whether you had leprosy or some unclean disease, or if you were unclean in some way, touched a dead animal, and then, if, 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 if you were unclean or had, if you had an unclean disease, if anyone came near you, you had to shout out, unclean, I'm unclean, stay away from me. Sin separates. It causes distance. And part of the frustration in this text is that we don't want to take responsibility for that. The heart of this text is let's blame somebody else. It, it was the woman you gave me. It was the serpent. He did it. It was my mother's fault. You know, it, it was because of what happened to me when I was a little kid. You know, it was because my friends were doing it. You know, we've all been impacted. Those are all, may all be true, right? We've all been impacted by a decision that somebody else has made. But at some point, we have to take responsibility for the choices that we make. I'm responsible, not Adam and Eve. And what we see here is, is, is a bunch of victims wanting to blame somebody else instead of just standing up and saying, I'm the one who sinned. James chapter 1, verse 13. We're familiar with this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's our choice, not somebody else's. We can't blame others for our choices. And so here we see not only... Uh, we see the encounter with Satan. We see the encounter of God and with God. Not only do we see those, but you know what? We also see here, number three, an encounter with reality. Encounter with reality. God said at creation, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Well, Mark it down, Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. It gives us a powerful, powerful reality check. It says this, altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. <laughs> you may wait a long time before you see the consequences of your choices. God said, if you eat this tree, you will die. And Adam died. What was it uh, here not too long ago? Um, there were some, uh, I, might got, I might have some of the, the uh, I was trying to find it. Um, I might have some of the details of this mixed up, but I think that the, the heart of this is right anyway. But see, a while, not too long ago, there were some pelicans. Uh, evidently, they were from California and didn't like, you know, the, the way that the Californians were feeding them or something like that. And so they made their way to Arizona. And you know how it is in the summer in, 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 in you know, the, the, the pavement sometimes looks like water. And you know how hot Arizona is and everything else. And these pelicans... They were flying over Arizona, they were looking for food, they were looking for water, and they saw what they thought was water, and they came down expecting a nice cool dip, and boom. Um, anybody remember that story? Here's, it wasn't, it was, it's, it's been a little while, uh, it's been at least a year or so. But anyway, what they ended up with was 
hot pavement and desert. A rather rude reality check. Fortunately, the Arizona Game and Fish Department saved them. But, but you know, you think about that. Life is a lot, is a lot like that. I mean, you, you, you think you're going for a dip in a cool pool and you come smack dab into a reality of some hard pavement. But that is the nature and the co- of, the, of the consequence of sin. It, it is so real. And so in Genesis chapter 3, God says to the man, he says, you could have spent your life with meaning in the cool of the garden, taking care of it, having this life where work was good, but instead... Work is no longer going to be a pleasure. It's going to be absolute work. And you're going to sweat. And the ground that you're, is just going to produce stuff that you don't want. And life is going to be hard because of your choices. And Eve, your life was destined to be a mother. You have to, 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 to have the joy of bringing children into this world. But now it's going to be painful and then something interesting happens. Genesis 3.16, I don't know if I have that. I don't think I do. I don't have it. But something interesting happens in Genesis 3.16. It says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Obviously, that means that men are more superior than women. And God believes that, right? You're listening. <laughs> That is the same word, by the way, that shows up in chapter 4, verse 7, when, when uh, and God says to Cain, he says, sin is crouching on at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. That's the same word that's used here in relationship between Adam and Eve. Remember when we looked, took, looked at creation a while back? Eve comes from Adam's... This was also on our quiz this morning, guys, our little young people who are listening. Eve comes from... Adam's leg bone, right? Eve comes from Adam's rib, from his side. And yet here, she doesn't come from the foot or the head, right? And yet here, one of the consequences of living in a fallen universe is, is conflict between men and women. Because she desires to rule over him but he will rule over her. And what what should have been a relationship of of equality becomes a source of pain and conflict in our families and in our culture. Sin always has consequences, always. Well, when you read this text, what you do, what you come face to face with is that we live in a fallen world. Even the environment gets destroyed by the fall of humanity. Thorns, thistles, fires, cancer, and broken relationships and separation from God and separation from each other. But I want us to hear this. That's a lot of negative, isn't it? All through this text, though, there are glimmers of hope. There are these incredible signs of hope and incredible signs of grace. And so a woman is going to have pain in her, in, in her childbirth but she is still going to give birth to children. Someone said this, I don't remember who said it, but a child is God's, in, in God, is God's opinion that the human race should continue. The fact that Cain and Abel and Seth are all born to Eve is an act of grace. 
And what's really amazing is, is that that story gets told over and over and over again in the Old Testament about how God continues to populate the earth in spite of sinful, fallen humanity. In fact, the first announcement of the gospel, the good, good news, is right here. The good news is, it, it, in, it's here in verse number 15, coming from this relationship between Adam and Eve, there is going to be enmity between the, the, the snake and the woman, between the offspring of the snake and, and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan. This announcement of the gospel is precisely this. The woman is going to bring forth offspring and when those Jewish, early Jewish, uh, Jewish writers began to bring this text into the language of the people, already they began to understand that the offspring of Eve would become Jesus. Glimmers of hope, signs of grace. You know, I was reading an article here recently, and I ran across something that I've never seen quite said this way before. The writer said this, and I want you to think about this. This is, it, it, it just caused me to just stop and, and take notice and, and think about it. He said, death is an act of grace. I've never thought about it like that before. I, I, I've probably said some similar things at funerals, you know, when someone, you know, you've seen someone who has suffered, you, 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 you say, you know, you know, you wouldn't want them to suffer, to continue to suffer like that. You know, we wouldn't want to bring them back unless they were going to be healthy, right? We understand that. But it just kind of struck me that because of Adam and Eve's fall, we live in this broken universe. If God had allowed Adam and Eve to eat from that tree of life, chaos would have gone on forever. If Adam hadn't died he would have had to live in that chaos forever. Even death itself is an act of God's grace which releases us from the chaos and the pain of this life and gives us hope that there is something on the other side where we are free from the chaos and the pain and the destruction. There are hints of hope, including this one. It was God Himself who provided the first sacrifice to cover the sin of humanity. It was God who enacted the first death in the garden. He killed the animals to provide skins to clothe his creatures and thus began a whole system of animal sacrifice leading up to the sacrifice of the Son of God to cover over our sin. Even in the fall there is a sign of even in the fall there is a sign of hope. In fact, this carries all the way to chapter 11. There's the same pattern that is always there. There's sin, there's God's, God's announcement of judgment, then there's a word of grace, and then there's the judgment itself. And so you see it in, in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother. God confronts Cain. But before there's this separation, there's this promise, I will not let them kill you, Cain. And then he's banished from the garden. And then there's the flood in which all of humanity is corrupt, and God decides to put an end to the whole thing. But before he says that this is over, he says, Noah, build an ark, because it's the ark that I'm going to use to save humanity. And then there's the Tower of Babel. We could go on and on. It's the same thing. The pattern in Scripture is always the same. Man, sin, man sins. Sin always brings consequences. That may not, they may not be immediate, but there are always consequences to our sin. In fact, the book of Hebrews reminds us that it's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment 
sin and judgment, right? But before that, there's always an inkling of grace whereby God says it's the nature of man to sin and his sin will always have consequences. God always announces grace. I will do something to fix it. And so my job this morning has been to make you miserable, to remind you that you are all sinners, because you are, and so am I. The job of the rest of the remainder of our service is to announce to you redemption. Everything else that we're about to do is to point you in one simple direction, right here to this table. For even as God slew animals to cover Adam and Eve, to cover their sins, God put to death His Son to cover our sins. And so we begin to move with hope to this act of grace, to gather at this table and to be reminded that God wants again to walk with His children in a relationship that is alive and well. Pray with me, would you? God, I acknowledge this morning that it is not a comfortable subject to talk about sin. We talk about temptation and how we so, so, so fall short. And yet, God, that's what we need to do. We need to stand up like men and women, um, boys and girls, just stand up straight and acknowledge that, yes, in fact, God, we are responsible for everything that we do that violates your commands. We need you. It's precisely why you sent Jesus. We need you, God. Give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart. Help us to remove all of the idols in our lives, God, so that we can stand before you in, in cleanliness and purity. And God, see you as you are. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for this cup and this loaf that are such a great reminder to us today of the penalty of sin. But in essence, it reminds us of the act, the greatest act ever of grace. And so today, God, as we take of the cup and of the loaf, bring us to Jesus. Bring us to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.